So Act 6, um, our custom is to read, but I'm not going to do have us read around the circle because it usually takes more time, and we got a little late start. So let's begin with uh, the first verse. During those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily uh, distribution of food. So there was this classism, the Gentiles versus the Hebrews. And you notice the Hellenists would be your Gentiles, and the Hebrews would be the Jews. So the Jews were taking care of their own and neglecting the Gentiles. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. So I can't resist stopping for a moment. This reminds me of a story that comes out of James and Ellen's life, where James was doing all kinds of administrative details as president of the General Conference, including where to put the toilets in the General <laughs> Conference building, I guess. And Ellen White wrote to him that God had not enjoined on him the task of dealing with the privies, as she called them, <laughs> um, but that he was to be general conference president and not do all those little details. So the, the, apparently the, um, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, decided that it wasn't right that they should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and, Nicola, and Nicholas, I'm sorry, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. No word in, of ordination. Can't resist saying that either. Uh, there's no word for ordination in the New Testament. Just the laying on of hands. Verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. You would have thought that he was an apostle, wouldn't you? And yet he's just a deacon. <clears throat> Let us not think that we have really a tiered situation in the church. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You notice where they put Moses? This is something that uh, they had come, this is, comes right out of Babylon. When they went to exile, the Jews uh, looked around and, and they heard a lot about Hammurabi. Now Hammurabi had been a king, let's see, 1750 circa, <clears throat> and they're in Babylon in, what is it, 538, somewhere around there. So you're talking 1,200 years ago, Hammurabi ruled. 
They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Mm -hmm. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, And now we have one of the greatest sermons. Yeah. In the entire Bible. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The Lord, the God of glory, appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and go to the land I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him move from there to this country in which you are now living. He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him Abraham because of the father became and then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. What's he doing here? He's bringing them back to their, their history and their lineage and their connection with God and See if you can find the theme he's, he's going to end on. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. And notice he doesn't call them Jacob's sons. He calls them the patriarchs. Hmm. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and show wisdom where he stood before Pharaoh, king of when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering, and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors down there on their first visit. Now he changes the patriarchs to ancestors. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt he himself died there as well as our ancestors, and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought for a, sil a silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so that they would die. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful before God. Yeah. For three months he was brought up in his father's house, and when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his kinsfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand. The next day he tried, came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became a resident alien in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now, why would Stephen, in, in a sermon that is really quite short, why would he tell this story about Moses? That Wasn't that kind of a, a side story? Not real important. And again, what is this part of a theme? Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he approached to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt, the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from among your own people as he raised me up. He is the one who, in the who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make gods for us who will lead us away. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. Are you picking up the theme? Mm -hmm. At this time they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to an idol, and reveled in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer to me slain victims to sacrifice forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon to the images that you made to worship, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, for, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. Something's happened. He's switching gears here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? 
They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. I'm going to start with this. This is not where we're going today with this. But there's a hermeneutic that has come from Calvinism. It's becoming popular among some Adventists. And that hermeneutic says that what God foreknows and what he predicts will happen is his will. So, if the Jews crucified Jesus, that's God's will. If they reject Jesus, that's God's will, because he predicted they would. I'm starting to read about middle knowledge, and I don't know too much about it, but my dad kind of set me off on that, and it's really quite interesting about free will and Uh foreknowledge. And I just started reading about it last night. It's really quite fascinating about how it's not necessarily so. Yeah. Not the only way you can see it. Yeah. It's really quite fascinating. Well, it, it troubles me because if that's the case, if if we become Laodicean, then that's God's will. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, I think Stephen's sermon goes directly against that because God predicted they're going to Babylon. He predicted... They're they're not trusting in him and worshiping other gods. At least he foreknew it. It wasn't his will. It wasn't his will that they crucified Jesus. That isn't the only way he would have had to die. It wasn't his will that they reject him. And I, I just wanted to say that again. I think I said it some weeks ago. Uh, but I wanted to say it again because... Um, you might run into somebody with that viewpoint. I did on Spectrum. I wrote an article, and they challenged my article on the basis of that view. I was like, I didn't, I didn't talk back to them. I, I believe silence is golden, <laughs> particularly on Spectrum. Just playing like whatever he feels like he wants to do, playing a game or something. Well, it, it's very disingenuous, but you see, of course, in in the in Calvinism you have this divine sovereignty that is absolute. Absolute sovereignty. Nothing in the Hebrew Bible is absolute. In the, in the sense that everything is rooted in situations, and situations change from situation to situation. And the Hebrew, Hebrew thinking is dynamic, as opposed to Greek thinking, which is static. So it's a very different worldview in the Hebrew Bible and I think Stephen's sermon reflects that worldview a lot. So what did you get out of this sermon? 
I, I like the way I, I always have fun when I come to this class and I read the interlinear and I, I like verse 54 that says after he immediately when he finishes his sermon it says and hearing these things they were cut to their hearts mm-hmm. they they got it immediately they knew what was what was being said with their pride <laughs> they knew it and they gnashed the teeth at him mm-hmm. literal translation I thought it was very, very interesting, just on a side note, um, that um, Moses was described as beautiful to God. I really like that. I had mm-hmm. never really picked up on that. It's really interesting. It makes you think, beautiful in what way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But it does cut Moses down, as you were saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Shows him as very much... Um, a human being. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it shows how they they rejected their ancestors rejected mm-hmm. Moses, and now yeah. you're you're rejecting Neil Moses, yeah. <laughs> and then rejecting Jesus, <coughs> and um, persecuting John right. the Baptist, and yeah. the whole thing yeah. all over again. And they well, got it. They says all the prophets they rejected them mm-hmm. and persecuted them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just you're just doing the same thing your ancestors did, same tune, same station. This always used to make me, and still makes me very sad, you know, thinking of Stephen. I like the the very last thing you read immediately before chapter 8, and here it says, um, when he finishes saying, forgive them, pretty much paralleling paralleling Jesus, and this having said, he fell asleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, He He fell fell asleep. asleep. Our theme that we're working on is salvation and atonement. It seems, and this is only like the fourth or fifth time we've read something like this, where they, one of the apostles or a deacon, as in the case of Stephen, really indicts the Jews for the rejection of Jesus and says, you have to repent of that. It seems that their view of the death of Jesus is rejection. Not Jesus died a substitutionary penal death so that I get set free. That doesn't seem to be the Acts message. And I find that interesting because we don't ever talk about the atonement in those terms, do we? We don't talk about how Jesus was rejected, how um, maybe the Jews are our spiritual ancestors and we are doing just what they did. I heard a powerful sermon last night I found it on Facebook uh, by Dwight Nelson. <clears throat> He's doing a series in the Pioneer Memorial Church on how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's basing it on um, a book that has been published by a German Adventist. I, I assume he's an Adventist pastor or maybe a theologian. Um, Helmut, uh, and I can't remember the last name. It's... Um, It's hard to pronounce and hard to spell. But um, it's basically the same thing we've heard in generations ago with Morris Menden, that the way to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to develop a personal relationship with Jesus while you know him. And his, what was so powerful about his sermon 
It was what he did with the Laodicean message. And I don't know if this is this German theologian's take or if it was Dwight's take. I sense this is the German theologian's take. He pointed out something that he had never seen before and I had never seen before in the Laodicean message. Where God says, you know, I wish that you were hot or cold because you are neither hot nor cold. I am on the point of spewing you out of my mouth. I'm throwing you out. Sort of like, that's how you feel about lukewarm water, right? <laughs> you feel like spitting it out. And then he says, I, I counsel you to buy me gold tried in fire and, and white raiment that you might be clothed, your nakedness might be closed, and, and so on. And then it ends this way. Look, I'm standing outside the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into that person and eat with them and they with me. What's Jesus saying? I'm outside the church. We've rejected him once again. So I think Stephen's sermon, and he could have used Stephen's sermon along the way, mm-hmm. but of course you can only use so many Bible illustrations on one sermon in the time frame you have. But Stephen's sermon is the same thing. Jesus is outside Jerusalem. He's outside the church. It's, a, it's amazing. Uh, I thought of, you see, like what you're saying, the they were convicted in their heart. They knew what he said was right. But they, sin is so insidious that it... And remember Ellen White talking about when, when Lucifer, his final decision, when he stands up and reveals that he was the creator and in the true position of the son. It said even Lucifer, in his, where he'd gone so far, he was convicted. But then the pride and the... The turning back well, against all logic. And, and Ellen White portrays this picture that, to me, is very, very real yeah. in, in our church right now. Mm-hmm. And that picture is, he's, he's honed this rebellion in heaven among all these angels. Yeah, yeah. And they're depending on him. And if he shows any weakness, any, any sign yeah, of turning, they're going to be on his case. Well, you, you led us this way. Yeah, you can't back yeah, out now. Yeah. You're our leader. Mm-hmm. That's that's what everybody, every leader that goes astray faces is that moment where they have to choose between. I mean, that's really humbling yourself if you're willing to say, "Look, I'm wrong. You can stone me to death, but I'm going to go this way." It's very literal too. They cry out in a loud voice, and they hold their ears. ears yeah. <laughs> so they're yelling. <laughs> You could just imagine like a graphic novel. You know? yeah. yeah, I'd make a great cartoon yeah. picture, actually. Yeah. Check out my dad's Life of Christ. It was kind of way back, cutting edge back in the 80s. Uh-huh. Did a big graphic novel of Life of Christ. I want to see them yelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's such a miracle of the Holy Spirit to mm-hmm. break a heart or mm-hmm. change or taking out that heart of stone or that heart of pride. It is, you know, it is absolutely a miracle for humans to... <laughs> You know, and, and like you said, in lead, you know, we see it in leadership. We see it in our own sides to to keep that humble position before 
always think one of the um, when you Townsend Cloud, if they use often about save their book on saved people, the number one characteristic of an unsaved person who thinks they have it all together. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and we, we can be so unsafe sometimes in our in our leadership and our opinions and, and they can be so destructive. You know you know what our pride leads us to do and when we think we have it all together, we believe we have infallibility. <laughs> And our infallibility leads us to try to judge other people, to point fingers at other people. Yeah. Well, that was hard hitting. For this early on, he just really he laid it out in that whole historical, you know, powerful sermon. It's powerful. He just, just just came right at him. But don't you have to do that at some point? It's it, if yeah. if you soft pedal something uh, so critical, they're at this point of no return. And if uh, this is God's last shout out, yeah. um, <clears throat> I think of I think of God as, as constantly trying in every way to call His people to Himself, yeah. to to soften their hearts, to to bring them to realize who He is, uh, and to accept Him. Okay. And as the more they resist, the more gentle God is, and they resist that, the harder they become. If you resist the the gentleness of God, you become harder and harder and harder of heart. Yeah, if the spirit isn't there, it's like her, hardening Pharaoh's heart kind of thing. And this reminded me of John six, where Jesus hit that point where you know he doesn't he just cuts loose. He knows the consequences, and he even says, "Eat my flesh, drink my blood." Mm-hmm. You know, which is just totally repulsive. He deliberately he just, did that. Yeah. <laughs> You have no part. You know, you just had to just, you guys, this is, I have to just tell you. Yeah. This is critical. Mm-hmm. I had I had a moment, maybe a little bit of a Stephen moment this summer. Um, I went to bed in ordinary fashion, and uh, oftentimes as I'm falling asleep, I pray. Mm-hmm. And... Often my prayers get ended by my falling asleep. <laughs> but um, I felt this extra sense of God's presence surrounding me that night. I had no idea why. Went to sleep. Next morning I get up and while I'm in the shower I often ruminate a lot, thinking about things, usually theological things, church-related things. And all of a sudden, this oh, uh, pouring out of ideas came on me. I, I just, one idea after another, and I thought, you know, I really should write this down so I don't forget these ideas. And then I thought, you know, if I start writing them down, I'm going to write an article, because all these ideas went together. Well, then I, I recognized the Holy Spirit speaking to me that, that Jesus was near me and I needed to write what I was being given. And I sat down and composed an article for Spectrum magazine called The Rehoboam Syndrome and Its Cure about how Rehoboam split the nation with his oppressive tyranny. And I said things in there I never would have said if it hadn't been for that outpouring. Mm And, and it, you know, I still read it and don't own it. <laughs> you know how that, that works? It doesn't feel like me at all. 
just in took, the writing no, you just took notes on the <laughs> yeah, I just took notes and tra <laughs> translated it yeah um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have my usual spin yeah. my usual style my usual finessing it's just kind of um, so I, I kind of understand where Stephen was. There's, there's been moments in my life where I had to take a stand that was not popular, where I knew I was going to get it for that. But it was okay because I knew I was doing what God wanted me to do at that moment. And okay, slay me, but this is where I stand. And I have that opportunity coming up if things don't change in the IBMTE. <laughs> um, so these are the kinds of things that we find happening as a church de starts to decay and leave Jesus outside. It loses the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. It loses the fruit of the Spirit. And then we start all this dissension and grumbling and backbiting and jealousy and evil surmising and finger pointing and accusing and, and on and on and on, which is too much of what's going on in the church right now. What can we learn from this for ourselves? You know, Gene, I think like what you said and what he's appealing to, it's so easy to think we're different and we're above that, and we are not a rebellious generation, and we're, you know, no, we're not like that. But he, he just says, hey, you're doing the same thing to Jesus as you were doing to these other prophets, and you did time after time. They kind of forgot that part of the story of their, of their ancestry, how they killed the prophets. <laughs> No, we, they we, kind of worship. They worship their ancestors, especially Moses. Yeah. Well, we're not doing what they did. Why, well, if uh, if our prophets were remember the tombs, yeah. if we would garnish the tombs of our prophets, if we had them today, uh, we would not kill them. Yeah. Oh, really? <sighs> Humility. Mm -hmm. Humility. Yeah, I think that's what we all need, and I think that's. Humility recognizes our need. Mm -hmm. And then, once we recognize our need, maybe we're willing to open that door to Jesus mm -hmm. and let him in. Pride is tremendously destructive. just destroys so much. It, it destroys our vision. It destroys our ability to see things the way they are. I worry, you know, I've never been to the One Project. But I worry about a church that would diss a group of people for wanting to focus on Jesus. I find that a very, very disconcerting thing. Um, and I think, just in closing, there are two visions that Ellen White had that I want to bring together because I think they're so timely and that they were her earliest visions or among her earliest visions. One is her very first vision. Uh, the pathway leading up high and lifted up above the world, people falling off to the left and people falling off to the right. 
And it was those who looked around at the darkness and started grumbling and complaining and pointing fingers and, and criticizing and accusing that fell off the path into the darkness. Probably they were criticizing that way and they fell off this way. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Just <laughs> saying. <laughs> but the real, the ones who made it, the ones who kept looking at the light, Jesus is standing at the top of the pathway, shining light on it. And those who keep following the light and moving toward the light are the ones that get there. That's the number one vision. Number two, her vision on the shaking, which is in Testimonies, Volume 1. In the shaking, the counsel to Laodicea was being given. It was being preached. And it caused opposition. And everybody got caught in this maelstrom of, of is, is this the way we go or is this the way we go? And it was only by keeping their eyes on Jesus. They had to agonize to keep their eyes on Jesus because the darkness was all around them. And then she saw the scene change. And here was the company who had agonized. The ones who didn't agonize fell away. The ones who agonized to keep their eyes on Jesus were like an army ready to move in unity in the redirection of mercy and goodness and presenting God. Mm. And I, I, think, I think instead of leaving Jesus out, we need to focus on him. Mm-hmm. And to, as a friend put it to me this week, she said, the answer to every question that you might ever raise is the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. So I'm going to close with that. Father, we pray for humility to recognize our need of You, to be willing to include You, to let open the door and let You in, or to explain our helplessness to let you in and ask you to come in. We ask that we not leave you standing outside the door any longer, but that we keep, that we allow you to come in and that we keep our, your, our eyes on you and that if necessary we agonize to keep our eyes on you. Bless us with this thought during this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Yeah.